Good morning. My name is Lori Atkins. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study Class uh, here in Collegedale, Tennessee. I'm substituting today for Tim Jennings. He is out uh, back in San Antonio, Texas this week. He'll be back to class next weekend. Um, Happy all of you are here. Happy all of uh, the folks online are joining us. We had somebody here, what, two weeks ago from Brazil. We had some folks here last week from Australia who have somehow found this class online and listen, and it's, it continues to astound me, kind of the breadth and depth of the reach of this class and this message. So we're happy all of you are here, all of you are joining us, and let's bow our heads. We'll start class with prayer. Father God, we are so grateful this morning for the opportunity to meet, the opportunity to study. We're grateful for the the beautiful sunshine and the little touch of autumn that we feel in the air here. Um, we're asking that you send your presence here, um, guide our study, open our hearts, and let us learn more about you, we pray in your name. Amen. So it's the 13th Sabbath. We're studying the, the last lesson in our current quarterly called Biblical Missionaries. And this lesson is titled, Must the Whole World Hear? Um, show of hands, how many studied this week's lesson? Good. So for me, maybe more than any other one I've taught, I have noticed, I noticed in this lesson that there was kind of a, a tug of war or a little walking the tightrope balance between some imposed law, penal substitution concepts, and natural law concepts. And I don't know if it was knowingly or wittingly or unknowingly, but it seemed like repeatedly they would get to a point in, in a decision or a discussion where penal substitution could not explain the concepts. And it just seemed like invariably they would default to the imposed law concept and even kind of throw up their hands and say, we don't know how he's going to work it out, but his ways are higher than our ways, and in the end, he's just and true, and every knee will bow and say... I mean, it was really just kind of a, a giving up, because penal substitution doesn't go through and explain all the concepts. It can't, if you believe everybody has to have their debt paid and their record book stamped and the payment applied... If you take that out to its, to its ultimate end, you can't explain some of the concepts we're going to talk about this week. So as we go along, see if you can pick out some of those, those dichotomies. So when you hear the, the title of the lesson, Must the Whole World Hear? What comes to your mind first when you hear that question? I think of, how is that even possible? With new babies being born all, uh, every minute and in the jungles of somewhere. Right. How's that even possible? And just the concept of the whole world seems a little bit overwhelming. What about... Hear what? What must they hear? The everlasting gospel. Yes, I mean... First thing that comes to my mind when I hear that, that question is the Great Commission, the, the command to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Does it matter which gospel the whole world is hearing? There's only one gospel. 
One true gospel. So let's take a look at the memory text that's in Sabbath's lesson. It's taken from Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what do we think was the this revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past that Paul's talking about here? Any thoughts? It was sort of a promise of, of salvation, but the exact how it was going to happen had to be pieced together. Right. You're really going to find it out. You had to look at the Bible as a puzzle and you find the pieces and only by putting the pieces together, Bethlehem there, mm-hmm. here, uh, stricken and smitten, right. rejected there, and only by putting the pieces together do you get the whole concept of what God had in mind for how he was going to save this race. Exactly. Right. And just the picture of of the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, was mysterious. It was mysterious enough to where they didn't recognize it when it actually happened. Um, What about the the true character of God? Do we think that was a mystery that had been hidden or, or, you know, misunderstood at least? Yes, Russell. Yeah, it makes you it makes you have an appreciation for the Old Testament uh, prophets and those who lived in that time. Job, for example, mm-hmm. and Enoch, or they they had no scripture. Right. To uh, to all they had was the book of nature, and and a communion with God and the hope of a coming savior. Right. Uh, and and it makes you really appreciate you know like what Enoch did. He you know, walked with God for three hundred some years and then was no more. Uh, but it was still the the um, it was still what Christ wrought when he was on earth here in, in the human in the human his human brain that was applied back in time to right. Job, to Moses, to Enoch, to Elijah, that um, that allowed for them that they gave them the knowledge, true knowledge of of uh, God's character of love. And we're gonna talk a lot more about those types of of folks. Um, because we're asking, must the whole world hear? Has the whole world heard? Was there not a significant period of time, number of people that existed before Christ, before what we know of as the gospel existed? Are they included in the whole world? So the first paragraph in Sabbath's lesson asks two, I think, critically important questions. Um, would someone please read that first paragraph loudly for us in, in uh, Sabbath's lesson? As we have seen, the Lord uses people to bring the message of the gospel to others. However, through the ages, millions have died without knowing the biblical plan of salvation. The fact is that a majority of those who have ever lived have not heard the story of, of redemption or known about the good news of God's grace as revealed in Jesus Christ. 
This leads to two persistent questions. First, on the day of judgment, how is God going to deal with those billions who have not known him? Second, is there salvation outside of someone or someone's knowing the plan of salvation as it is in Jesus? What do you think? On the day of judgment, how is God going to deal with these billions of folks who do not know him? I think it's trying to make a distinction is not correct, um, or, or an assumption. Um, and that is that those who haven't necessarily heard his name don't know God. That's correct. And that's not true. Um, there are many people who didn't know who God was and yet saw evidence of his character and lived in in harmony with that right and god's going to know them they are they know him um just because they don't know the name or haven't heard the gospel you know as we share it doesn't mean that they haven't still heard the good news correct they may have heard better news (laughs) in some cases yes russell god's going to deal with them the same way he deals with everyone yes he's going to love them Okay, his character doesn't change. His perspective doesn't change. The problem is, is that the humans who are out of harmony with his ways and methods and principles of government, they're going to perceive him differently. That's correct. And that's I have down. He's going to deal with them exactly the same way. He's going to accurately diagnose their condition. The second question, is there salvation outside of someone's knowing the plan of salvation as it is in Jesus? We've already mentioned Enoch, Job, I have down Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, the entire Old Testament, truthfully. Um, we've, got Ro- we've got folks uh, that Paul talks about in Romans 2, where he says, When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. This is from the message, isn't this good? Two, this is verses 14 and 15. 14 through 16. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. Their response to God's yes and no will become public knowledge on the day God makes his final decision about every man and woman. The message from God that I proclaim through Jesus Christ takes into account all these differences. I think we have a confidence we know the difference between right and wrong. And God's law just magnifies that. So I think when we have a conscience, we have the faculties and the avenue with which God can speak to us, with which we can come to know him and to start to trust him and to then start being transformed in our characters. So the last paragraph in Saturday's lesson starts out really well and then kind of asks us to suspend our reason and judgment as the penal substitution model falls short of being able to explain this particular concept. It says, in the end, the crucial point to remember is that Jesus has revealed to us the character of God, and this tells us a lot about his love for all humanity and his desire for as many as possible to be saved. 
Right. In fact, I would submit that what Jesus revealed to us about the character of God doesn't just tell us a lot. It tells us everything about his love for all humanity. Then it says, God is a God of justice, and however he works it out, the shout will be heard across heaven. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. However he works it out. Is he really working anything out at that point? Like we just talked about, will he simply be accurately diagnosing reality? Yes. Well, I mean, it, it does mention earlier on that this there are mysterious things, and maybe some things are still mysterious to the author. Possibly. But, and like I said, I think if, if you hold the penal substitution view, this concept is very mysterious. If everyone has to accept the blood payment, get that applied to their record, have their record books in heaven doctored or altered, it's very difficult to explain the concept of how people who have never heard that, who have never gone through that process, can be saved. I think that would sound very mysterious if, that's, if that were your only concept. Okay, let's move to Sunday's lesson. It's titled, No Other Name Under Heaven. The lesson states that some folks called exclusivists believe that only those who hear and respond positively to, quote, the Christian gospel can be saved. And I wonder what Christian gospel the quarterly is referencing here. Um, then the lesson says that some exclusivists take that even a step further and claim there is no salvation outside of their particular denomination and doctrines even for other professed Christians. And it has an example of uh, the Pope's declaration in the year 1302 that said that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. That sounds fairly exclusive. But are Protestants immune from this concept? Are Adventists immune from this concept? Um, Acts 4.12 is referenced in the lesson, and we're asked what this text is saying and what we think it means. Um, could somebody look up Acts 4, verse 12, and shout it out? Nor is there salvation in the other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What do we think that means? No man can save us. Yes. Anybody who is going to be in heaven is going to be there because of Jesus Christ. Exactly. And you can take it one step further. Once you, once you have come to know Jesus Christ, there is no reason that you have to worry about another Savior. So in other words, once you've gotten to that point, that's fine as long as you follow His way. Right. Cooperate with his methods. So what if I said salvation from polio comes by no other name but Jonah Salk? Why is that? He developed and procured the remedy. Is it necessary for me to know Jonah Salk or have met him 
or even ever heard of him for me to benefit from what he achieved. Our salvation comes by no other name because Jesus is the one who achieved the remedy, the cure for our terminal condition. And he's the only one who could have done it. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There, the people who don't want to be satisfied with Jesus Christ and who we understand him to be through Paul and you know New Testament, they, there, there's one particular group that has a, a book that will tell you almost on the first page, this is another gospel. And then you read, the further you read, the more they, you realize that they don't consider Jesus Christ to be the only Son of God who has the only final remedy for our salvation. Right. So, it's a big deal. There's an analogy listed in uh, Sunday, at the bottom of Sunday's lesson. I wonder if anybody read that. Um, let me ask somebody to read. It's the fourth and fifth paragraphs on Sunday's lesson. Starts with, imagine a man. Somebody read that for us. Imagine a man in a building that is on fire. Before being able to escape, he is overcome by smoke and collapses unconscious. A firefighter finds him on the floor, grabs him, and brings him outside where the medics take over. He is rushed to the hospital, and a few hours later he regains consciousness. The point is that this person who was saved had no idea who had saved him. In the same way, anyone who is saved, either before Jesus came in the flesh or after, will be saved only through Jesus, whether or not that person had heard of his name or of the plan of salvation. Any thoughts on the accurateness or applicability of this analogy? On the positive side, I think it's a step broader thinking to not be particular about unless they've uttered the believer's prayer right. and said, Jesus, save me. I think that's, a, that's a, I would say, a, a broader view. To that degree, I'm happy. Okay. Yes. I mean, I think we all would agree that Jesus doesn't save anybody that does not want to be saved. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but how do you know the person in the building wants to be saved? I mean, legally, when somebody's unconscious, you have implied consent. Right. To help them. I just don't know how to take that analogy to the spiritual level. Agreed. It's nice that they have woven in restoring the man back to harmony with the laws of restoration. Respiration. Yes. Uh, so there is some natural law uh, woven into this analogy. It, it is imperfect, uh, just like every analogy. But uh, you know, to the young man's point that um, you know the man may not have wanted to be saved. Correct. And and that's where the analogy breaks down because God's not going to force anyone in his company who doesn't want to be there. Yes. And so at the end of Sunday's lesson, there is a beautiful quote from the Desire of Ages that makes reference to the folks we just talked about listed in Romans 2. Um, I added a couple more paragraphs than what's in the quarterly. And it says, Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness, 
Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathens are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. So to me, this is another place where the analogy breaks down. These do not sound like unconscious victims of smoke inhalation. They are active. Their lives have been transformed. Their characters have been transformed, and it's evident in the way they live. Yes? I don't like to pick on analogies, only because we could use the same one with being inoculated for polio. They could be unconscious. You could give them the inoculation or something to benefit. So I think they're overall... Um, attempt to communicate something. If we focus on that, I think uh, it's in harmony with Ellen White's statement. Correct. But I believe this, this description by Mrs. White is a more accurate description of how salvation can happen for all of us. There are many non-heathen religious or even Christians who are still ignorant and would do well to adopt this basic approach of worshiping the creator, the designer, seeing what he has revealed about his character and nature, and hearing his voice speak to them there. All right, let's look at Monday's lesson. What about those that are ignorant and, as a result, believe in evolution? And so the whole idea of God as creator is not in their purview. That's an interesting concept. I'm not sure that even evolutionists cannot, whether they believe it was created by God or not, cannot see attributes of God in nature. Does that make any sense? They don't want to see it, but sometimes they do. because they're, And we've gone through in this class, there are many elements of the survival of the fittest concept that break down. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not across the board. So maybe it's like an appreciation of the natural law they can observe without an understanding of the source of that. And how it came to be. And how that came to yeah. be. Yeah. Yes, Mark. First the seed, then the shoot, then the ear of corn. So, you know, God is speaking to their hearts, knocking on their doors, planting that seed. And if it finds receptive soil, absolutely, full growth that needs to happen. So it's impossible for us to separate the wheats and the tares. Totally. And I don't think that the Holy Spirit is constrained by... Somebody believing in creation versus evolution. Yes, Linda. And uh, didn't uh, Ellen White say that uh, William Miller, I believe, was laid to rest before the Sabbath truth came because he wouldn't have been able to accept it? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, and so we, God knows, though, that if we are approached with various information and given enough evidence that it came from God, we would go that way. Right. But that certain things have created a barrier, maybe our background, mm-hmm. the way we think, that's created a barrier towards that particular idea. But once the barrier was removed, we would accept it. Right. Yes. I think in reference to what you're talking about, Romans one twenty, pretty much answers that. It says, for the invisible things, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So I think all of us actually come under that umbrella. We, we have 
we really don't have an excuse when you look you know that there's a designer somewhere right. i just think down the deeps of every person's heart they know somehow this came to be other than just happenstance and i think what this verse is saying well in kind of response to two things there if we're looking at this evolutionist and they are the type of person that, like Ellen White is saying, has responded to the spirit. Maybe this is the only truth that they can see, and mm -hmm. they're following the evidence that they seem to make sense right. with, and they just haven't been presented with other evidence that fits better. Absolutely. So if they're of the attitude that they follow truth when they find it, or truth as they can perceive it, I think that when the end time comes and they're shown, ah, you were, you were wrong, they'll be like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> That's fine. I sat through a lecture um, with a, a woman who had, was part of the Wycliffe Bible College, and her task was to, she was sent to Papua New Guinea in the middle of nowhere, and her task was to learn their language, develop a written form of the language, and then teach these people, and then translate the scriptures into that language. So and she spent 40 <laughs> plus years with them. And, and yeah. one, of the, one of her observations was that these people had no idea they had no. They had never seen a white person. They had no idea of Christianity, no anything concept. like that. But in their in their village, they were observing. I think she said eight of the ten commandments. Mm -hmm. They believed in a higher power. They did. They didn't have any idol worship. That every everything was owned by everything. There was right. no theft or coveting. It was taboo to uh, you know sleep with your neighbor's mm -hmm. wife or husband or to take life. Right. Uh, and it was taboo to to tell an untruth. So. These folks had no idea of who, of a designer, of a creator, right. and yet the Holy Spirit was still speaking to their heart, and they were open to that, and they were following the law that, um, they were following the light they were given. Yes. Yes. How about people who actually do, like the Apostle Paul? How did God view him while he was still Saul? Because he said later, the things I did before, I did in ignorance. Right. But now that the light has come, you know, it makes a different story. Yeah, and we're going to talk about how critical that is. It's the measure is what we do with the light we're, we've been given, not necessarily how much light. Yes. Did God make provision for people who are in ignorance to save them? Has he made provision? I think so. In yes, Romans, Tina. Uh -huh. Romans one twenty says... From the very moment the earth was created, God's true self has been constantly revealed. His eternal life-giving power, his loving nature, his respect for freedom, and his methods of gracious giving, his character is seen in everything he has made, so that humans are not left in darkness and have no excuse for the terminal state. It's so true. But it depends. I can tell you that if you have a distorted view of God it can block you being able to see that. You know what I mean? And vice versa, what you see in nature can undistort your view of God. But if you have no view of God, like right. talked about the heathens, this says that he has shown himself in everything he's made. So through nature, they can see God. Yeah. And what translation was that? That was from the remedy. Oh, that's the remedy. Yes, we had another comment back here. 
I mean, I think the Native Americans show it the best. I mean, because you know they didn't have they didn't have the Bible, they didn't do anything like that, and I mean they still they still you know just a creator, and that's what they did, and they they got all their evidence from from nature you know, creation around them, and they still worship them. Yeah, you know, they I, I feel that most of them will be there. They lived they live in close harmony with nature. Yes, Linda. Well, you know, I saw a, a thing on TV about one of the tribes in Papua mm-hmm. New Guinea, and they were actually doing circumcision. I mean, they, it was interesting. They were they were doing back in the Tulis. These people found them. They had a separate place for the women after they'd had babies to be away from the right. everybody. They did circumcision fairly soon. You know, when the wow. kid, boy was young. Um, and I wanted to just point out that in um, Matthew twenty-three, let's see, starting at fifteen, Jesus is saying. Um, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win this single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell that you are yourselves. Mm. I haven't that. So they might have been better off in this case if they had never come. That's right. (laughs) That they actually uh, present obstacles to an understanding of God by being missionaries. That's correct. And, and where the, the pure view that they would have gotten from nature would have been a lot more accurate. Yes. And what happens is that the pharisaical people try to make people like them instead mm-hmm. of like Christ or mm-hmm. God. And so that's why when they were bringing them in, they were still having the, the Pharisee mindset. Yes. Where they may have never had it before. That's the twice the son of hell. Yeah. So in Monday's lesson, there's an interesting couple of paragraphs that say, although the work of Christ provides the only means of salvation, some believe that explicit knowledge of Christ is not necessary in order for one to be saved, just like we've been talking about. This does not imply that salvation is available apart from Christ, but that God is able and willing to apply the merits of Christ's work to whomever he wishes. Is that true? Makes it sound arbitrary, though. A little bit. Is he, as a God of truth, love, and freedom, able to apply the merits of Christ's work to whomever he wishes? That's true. He gives everybody his will that everybody be saved. As long as they're accepting. And are the merits being there, the remedy being achieved, the same as someone being healed? They have to apply it in their life. That's right. So that's the traditional way we've heard this taught. What does it mean? Let's look at what are the merits of Christ's work. It seems like it's important to maybe clearly define those. We think of a, a couple of merits of Christ's work. What did he accomplish? I have down. He's a living revelation of God's character in order to win us back to trust and show us what the law of love looks like. Shows what happens as a result of sin. <laughs> clearly revealed God's character and clearly revealed Satan's character. Yes. He was the second Adam and he, he is our high priest. Yes. As the second Adam, half God, half man, He defeated the infection, our infection of fear and selfishness in his humanity, thereby procuring a remedy for our terminal condition and offering an alternative outcome 
or alternative trajectory for the species human versus the trajectory that we were on, based on Adam. He also promised to reproduce everything Christ achieved via the power of the Holy Spirit, not in whomever he wishes, but in anyone who trusts and chooses to cooperate with his character-transforming power. So it's available to everyone. It's like when the rain comes down, it rains on the good rains on everyone. Only uh, some you'd have to put up an umbrella not to get hit. Yeah. The rain. <laughs> oh, that's great. So it also says in in the quarterly, God, it's listing Romans two verses six and seven. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. What do we think those concepts mean? Is it is it talking about is God going to make sure everyone gets everything bad done to them that they've ever done to anyone else? No. One of the things that Tim said in here just blew my mind because I had never really thought of it that way. What is the what is the best revenge or what is the best uh, yeah I guess revenge mm-hmm. for, for being killed by somebody? Is it them being killed in retaliation for you, or is it you getting your life back? Being brought back to life. Yes. The best revenge is having a restored life. Yes. Because no matter if somebody kills your child or somebody, no amount of damage to the other person, death or, or anything, is going to res- restore the child under our certain circumstance here. Right. And so it won't repair that hurt, that emptiness in a person's heart. You'll get revenge on them, but the best revenge would be have your child back. Yes. And that's what God offers. Better revenge is to have the murderer's character transformed and have that's them. That's correct. You're not going to get the child restored, but there is still an opportunity to restore the character of the person who did that. That's correct. And those are the those are the hot coals. Yes. Is there a question on Romans two six and seven? Um, just talking about trying to explain what these what these concepts mean, where it says God will repay each person according to what they have done. So if, let's use the uh, inoculation uh, mm-hmm. idea. So if somebody is, has polio and they want an inoculation, and uh, somebody says, "Here's here it is," and they look at it and they grab another one, they give themselves a shot. Their deeds will show that they didn't take the right shot. So. It's uh, it's just the evidence of what whether you really wanted the truth or whether absolutely, you and it's it's an accurate diagnosis, and it is a it's a when it says uh, he's going to give eternal life, or he's going to repay everybody according to their deeds. To me, it's neither one of these are arbitrary. He's going to accurately diagnose. He's going to give up or let go of folks that have said, I don't want to be with you. And he's not going to arbitrarily give some eternal life. He's going to diagnose them as healed. And in harmony with the law of love, which is the law of life, and eternal life is the only natural result of that. Does that make any sense? So also in the Desire of Ages, I found on page 239... And we talked about this a little earlier. Our standing before God depends not upon the amount of light we have received, but upon the use we make of what we have. Thus, even the heathen who choose the right as far as they can distinguish it are in a more favorable condition 
than those who have had great light and profess to serve God, but who disregard the light and by their daily life contradict their profession. Christian churches are full of folks who have heard hundreds of sermons, hear scripture read publicly, but whose hearts and minds and lives and actions remain unchanged. Perhaps partly because of what is being preached and what kind of God is being portrayed. Yes, in the back. Uh, A couple of comments from online Uh listeners. Uh, God foreknew who would listen, not decided beforehand. That's one. Yes. The other one is forgiveness isn't the only requirements for salvation, though. Christ created a perfect, mature, sealed, selfless mind in a human brain that can be used as a template to transform our minds when we ask him to, and by beholding, we can be changed from glory to glory. Well said. Totally agree. Who wrote that? Exactly. Okay, so let's look at Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson talks about universalism and pluralism. Lots of isms. So universalists believe that in the end, God is going to save all human beings, regardless of what they believed or even how they lived. Basically, because we are so closely related to God, created in the image of God, we will all be saved no matter what. And the quarterly points out how one false doctrine, this false doctrine of eternal torment, leads to another false doctrine of universalism. Because if God so loved the world, then how can anyone really be lost? Especially if being lost means eternal torment in hell. How could God burn someone he loves forever? Obviously, they haven't heard that he's only going to burn them for as long as they deserve. <laughs> I kid. So how, how does natural law explain why not saving the lost is the only and most loving thing that God can do? It's their worst nightmare. I mean, if you believe that God is like Satan portrays him to be, spending eternity with him would be horrific. It would be hell. It would be hell. Yes. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. It occurs to me there's a possibility that if you were throughout your entire life totally opposed to God, and at some point through some miracle just prior to passing, realized his incredible love that you could be transformed. It would not be a force forcing you. Right. It would be a choice. Absolutely. And, and that could happen. I don't know what happens when the, people... The thief on the, before they thief on the cross have, is a... If they have a communion mm-hmm. some type with the Holy Spirit that, you know, just blows everything out of, out of, out of the way and, and there's a clear path. To you know, God through Jesus. Um, you know, you hear all these stories about people who have these after-death experiences right. and then come back. So, as much as we don't have any evidence of it, I don't think we have evidence that it doesn't exist. Like I said, I think the thief on the cross is is some classic evidence of of how that can happen. 
And I would I would bet that po- folks in the healthcare industry, both folks that work in hospice, things like that, that do see common end of life experiences, I would imagine they could testify that it happens. Yeah, I'm not trying to imply that he would force us into a situation. Right. But it is possible. Totally. That you know something could happen in totally. every single case. Yes. I think Satan knows that people are particularly open at their deathbed to Jesus' love. That's why he implemented a human system to give them last rites and for them to depend on a human. Interesting. Yeah. It's perfectly in harmony with the law of love that the Holy Spirit is going to contend with us for as long as our conscience is, is, is able to receive the message and comprehend That's it. That's right. The idea that uh, once you get put on hospice care, the Holy Spirit, oh, well, we're done here. Yeah. <laughs> no, certainly not. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit will contend with uh, with our um, conscience for as long as the conscience is uh, receptive. Is able to receive, yes. I think that's what it's referred to, you know, on, on Sabbath's lesson at the bottom. I know where you're coming from, but you said God is God of justice and however he works it out. I, when I read that, that's what I hear. Right. What Russell just said through his Holy Spirit. However, we don't know how he works. We don't know all the methods. Yes. However, he works it out. Yes. You know, we talk about the second or third resurrection when the wicked are raised in the end. And if when God's uh, love is fully revealed in a way that maybe they could understand, why is it too late then for them to be changed? And if it is too late, one could ask the question, I think. I don't know the answer, but I think it's a good question to say, and wouldn't that be true love if you say, well, otherwise, why would you raise them in the end just to play out the, the drama if there's not an opportunity for them to change at that point? Right. Well, <coughs> again, not. Yes, go ahead. Um, that's what I, was, I mean, the gates are open. And I mean, when he comes back down, the gates are open. But those people are so um, in tune to themselves that they're just they're not going to give that up to come back in. They're not going to give up this. They don't want to be selfless. They want to be. They want to be more in tune with their bodily and the worldly things, and they just right. wouldn't be happy there. That's, from my understanding, the gates are open. There is an opportunity for them to be converted, to be transformed, to accept the reality of of God's love fully revealed. But they are so settled into the lie about who God is and what He's like that they cannot be moved, even with a full revelation of God's glory, just as the saved are so settled into the truth about who God is. And some of that playing out, from what I understand, is for the benefit of the folks that are inside the walls who are convinced that if their loved one just could see how wonderful it is in here, who God really is, how kind, how loving it is, that he would be, he would be convinced and this is to, to let the people watching understand that God did everything he could. You know what I mean? And that this, is a, this letting go is, is a last resort and is actually giving the person over to their choices. Yes. I, mean, I think that's why they're resurrected in that resurrection is because if they were one with God already, they would have already been resurrected. Correct. But there are a lot of questions God has to answer. It's his judgment. The, the universe has to correct God. Is he answer everybody's question to everybody's satisfaction? Why he did what he did? 
why that he did everything he could possibly do and using all the resources of the universe to yeah. save each and every one yeah. each and every one and we may not think that we may be really surprised at who's in heaven and who isn't because when Guaranteed. I read in the Bible about the end of time I see surprised people everywhere yeah. people who are saved are surprised people who aren't are surprised no doubt you know uh, well I thought we were doing we did this in your name we did that in your name and all of a sudden Jesus, God says get away from me you evil doers yeah. I never knew you well, that's going to be shocked. a big shock, you know, and also people who said, you know, he said, uh, when did we do that? When did we do this? You know, well, yeah. when you did it, when you gave them water, who knows who the who least knew? of these yeah. are? It could be pets. It could be your child. Right. It could be anything that you are responsible for. How you treat that thing yeah. or that person or whatever, that's treating God. And God judges by our acts. That's why Paul says, a faith without works is dead. It's because when the faith changes you, the what you do the with behaviors that change. shows the whole universe how you were cured. And that's right. where the works comes in. You take the medicine, that's a work, and then it works its out itself in you, and you become more and more godlike, more and more unselfish. But it will be a big question to people in the universe. Why did these people come up in this resurrection? Why did those people come up? And the whole, every question anyone ever had about God has to be answered. I think yeah. it's one of the reasons these 6,000 years of evil have gone on and on because there are many, many questions to answer. And I think if we look at the Bible in terms of God's response to the accusations. these accusations, you could see him answering all yes. the different questions. And it takes a while because the universe might have tons of questions about how God manages his universe. Right. Well, and it takes a while because we aren't getting it. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's important, too, is that the whole thing is not about us. The whole thing is about God refuting accusations that he's arbitrary, that he's fear-mongering, that he's angry. Yes? All we have to do to realize how polarized human beings can become in their thinking and in their actions is to see what's going on in our country politically today mm -hmm. and around the world religiously with these people <coughs> call themselves you know a major world religion trying to force everybody to think exactly like they do and at the point of a sword yes and so when you realize that there is a point where you cannot work with people then you really need to just try to do your very best to be positive and to and to be a healing part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. And speak the truth in love yeah, and love and leave right. people and, and free. I mean I'm so Linda could tell you I'm I'm so overwrought really about what's happening because of of the terrible leadership and the terrible decisions that have been made in this country that I've tried to say stuff stuff like that you know and I have someone in my family that's on the opposite polar opposite you know mm -hmm. so what I've come to realize is that I can't be that um, abrasive polar opposite to them right and be a healing person and so this is what God wants us to do, I think. You know, it has always really bothered me to think that 
if I contribute to the world radio, that just because these people have had the opportunity or they've tuned in one time by random chance to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I have done, that the gospel commission has been actually fulfilled for them. Right. How can that possibly be if we're supposed to be a healing solution? In the hands and feet. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so related to universalism is the concept of pluralism. This is the belief that all religions are equally valid, lead equally to God and to salvation. So no religion is inherently better than or superior to any other religion. For pluralists, the vast range of religious truths and rituals and beliefs and symbols, metaphors, they are merely surface differences between denominations, all concealing a similar core. According to them, all faiths at their core teach basically the same thing, a love for God or a higher power, uh, love for your fellow human beings or something like the golden rule, and a hope for a blessed future life. So it would be very chauvinistic and arrogant to try to push Christian beliefs upon those who are members of non-Christian faiths. What do you think about this philosophy that all religions teach basically the same concepts, therefore they're all equally valid? They do teach the same concepts, but I wouldn't say that they're those. I would say a lot of them are the concept of appeasement. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that God is angry and therefore had to have a blood payment in order to accept me. Right. Well, even Satanism teaches you know to love your neighbor and mm-hmm. you know everything just like you know a Christian. But I I don't feel that that is anywhere close to what is right. Right. Because it could be your definition of love. Love your neighbor could mean chop their head off if they don't agree with you. Yeah. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. So what about this thought? That someone, yes. Someone read a text over on the other side earlier that says that some people go out and make people twice the devils they are. <laughs> so yes. all religions then cannot be pointing to God if there's one that is making people twice the devils they are. And that was Christianity. Yes, Russell. The reality is there are only two religions on the planet. What might those be? I was waiting for you to ask. There's, there's the religion revealed by Jesus of Nazareth, and then there's everything else, which is, which is detraction from that. Right. Yes, Mark. I think universalism and pluralism pretty much sum up the ecumenical movement. movement. And um, I agree that there are two religions. One is based off of the last of Satan at the very beginning, that you could be saved through your own works, and that uh, God's not going to destroy you, and your eyes will be up, open, and you'll be like God's. And I think all the other religions in the world adhere to those things, except for Christianity. And true Christianity, true Christianity. yeah. And there's only ever two groups. We have thousands of Christian religions. 34,000. There's only yeah. ever two. Groups. Ever two. There's the righteous and the wicked, the sheep, the goats, the good, the bad, the, you know. Wheat and the tares. You're in one, no matter where you are, you're yeah. only in one of those two groups. Correct. So it sounds like we're saying that what we believe matters. If only we knew someone who could speak to this subject, 
If only we had reference materials or a resource we could go to to tell us if what we believe really matters. Oh, wait. We do. So, uh, the first chapter in this book is called The Power of Belief. And if you remember the saying, you have power over what you believe, but what you believe has power over you. You may remember that. So we've illustrated many times in this class how believing a lie literally changes us. Neurologically, physiologically. Some of you may remember a story Dr. Jennings has told about attending a conference several years back. The conference was at Harvard University. It was called Spirituality in Medicine. And they had representatives from all different backgrounds, all different faiths that were there to, were, they were allowed to speak on their spiritual beliefs and the impact it was having on their parishioners, on their patients. Um, and at this conference, a woman got up and she extolled the virtues of her Wiccan faith. This is the pagan religion of white witchcraft, the Wiccans. And apparently all 1,300 plus folks there broke into massive applause and support for uh, her Wiccan ways. So Tim went up to the podium at some point after this woman, and he said something like, while we absolutely want to support the freedom of anyone to believe as their conscience leads them to believe, we should not confuse people's freedom to, to believe whatever they want with the idea that all beliefs are equally healthy. They're not. An earnest belief that smoking helps your lungs and helps you breathe easier does not make it true. Earnestness and sincerity do not make a misguided belief any more right or healthy. So believing in false God concepts, regardless of which specific denomination is responsible, is damaging, it promotes fear, it destroys love. Belief in a loving, beneficent God is the only one shown to be healing and restorative to our minds and bodies. Yes, Linda. Well, to use an example that was shocking to me, I'm a nurse, and sometimes I was involved in the care of anorexic. Mm -hmm. And their belief is so strong yes. that they're fat and overweight that they can look like an Auschwitz victim. I mean, literally skin over bones. But when they look in the mirror... They see a fat person. That's right. Their belief in that is so strong that no amount of objective evidence can change their mind or, or so on. I mean, it's a very difficult patient to treat. You had to turn them. When you weighed them, you had to actually turn them in the other direction so, so they, they couldn't could see the see number. Because if they even gained it like a half a right. pound or something, they would do anything it took yeah. to lose that weight, even though they were starving themselves. I mean, that's the power of belief. Yes. That's, that's the dysmorphism, and that is why the folks who are standing outside the gate cannot be moved. Their distortion and their belief in the lie about God's character, no amount of actual revealed glory evidence can change them. Yes. But there's not too many people that would actually say, I don't believe in a God of love. See, so you're making the distinction. Yes. If you believe this, then you're safe and you're going to be whatever. But not too many Christians are out there that say, I really don't believe in a God of love. But what the problem comes is when they what does that look like? the logical conclusion of the beliefs that they do hold dear, that it shows that it's other than a God of love. Right. That 
that's where the destruction comes in. So going back to your coming and reasoning, while it might seem like we're contemplating our navels a lot of time and repeating and repeating, yes. the reality is that if we don't have a cohesive picture, not only does that help us, it helps our ability to help other people. Absolutely. Because I think, as we've heard before, that maybe the maybe the figurative 144,000 will be those who can articulate mm -hmm. this understanding to the degree where they can affect change in others. Absolutely. I might be safe to save not have, having a kind of a muddy picture and saying, I don't know what it is, but... I, I just know God's love, mm -hmm. but I haven't formed a particular route. I'm easier to be influenced than someone who has said, I believe in a God of love, but it's this kind it of like that. wayfaring yeah. pathway away from that true ultimate goal. So I do think that it's worth belaboring and discussing and, and getting this into our minds Absolutely. so where we truly can be effectual for others. And I, I think that that is where the integrative evidence-based approach is so can be so effective you know what I mean because it it's not just any one piece it demands the blend of the science the scripture and the experience and I believe when those are wrought out in our lives we do become much more effective in being able to to voice or speak or explain because we're talking from from something we've already experienced and reasoned out you know what I mean not theory that's well said other comments Okay, so if we want more, if you any of you want more information about those topics, both of Dr. Jennings' books talk about the power of belief, the effect it has on our minds, how our minds can be healed, transformed, the Healing the Mind DVD, the God in the Brain DVD. Visit our website. It's a little shameless plug, but there is a lot of work done on our website at comeandreason.com. It is an amazing wealth of resources all the dvds are up there and visible you can order books all these bible study classes are there tim writes a blog anyway and you'll put your notes up there too because your synthesis yes is the, the, and very helpful yeah notes lessons all right so one more quote before we close this is also from the desire of ages and it supports this this concept of of pluralism. In all ages, philosophers and teachers have been presenting to the world theories by which to satisfy the soul's need. Every heathen nation has had its great teachers and religious systems offering some other means of redemption than Christ, turning the eyes of men away from the Father's face and filling their hearts with fear of him who has given them only blessing. The trend of their work is to rob God of that which is his own, both by creation and by redemption, and these false teachers rob man as well. Millions of human beings are bound down under false religions in the bondage of slavish fear and stoic indifference, tolling like beasts of burden, bereft of hope or joy or aspiration here, and with only a dull fear of the hereafter. It is the gospel of the grace of God alone that can uplift the soul. The contemplation of the love of God manifested in his son will stir the heart and arouse the powers of the soul as nothing else can. Christ came that he might recreate the image of God in man. And whoever turns men away from Christ is turning them away from the source of true development. He is defrauding them of the hope and the purpose and glory of life. He is a thief and a robber. Any closing comments?
Thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for your active participation. Let's close with prayer. Father God, we are, we are just amazed at who you really are. And, and as we discover more and more of it, we are more and more amazed. We're so grateful that you are not like Satan portrays you to be. And we are so grateful that you went to such lengths to, to reveal who you are and to win us back to trust. And we pray that you would continue to enlighten our minds, continue to, to show us truth and, and let us be open to it. Um, Father, continue to bless this class. Bring us all back safely, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.